0: Typical writing day for me probably involves more time pacing around my study, reading stuff out loud, than it does actually typing into my computer.
1: Oh, I would cast somebody who knows how Southerners talk and doesn't do one of those ridiculous Hollywood imitations.
2: I just had a very relaxing time in this very quiet box listening to myself talk. It was rather enjoyable, if I do say so myself.
0: Welcome to This is the Author, where authors talk about narrating their audiobooks.
2: In this episode, meet novelist Mosin Hamid, fiction and nonfiction writer
1: Beverly Lowry, and poet, actor, and student Alora Young. Hear all about the ways the spoken word elevated the language and experience of their works. Enjoy!
0: This is Mosin Hamid. For me, the book is very much about loss and the feeling of loss that I think most of us experience over the course of life as the world around us changes. And there are things that we are tied to that are wonderful things. There are things that we are tied to that, in retrospect, may not have been so wonderful, may in fact even have been to a certain degree malign. But whatever they were, they were important to us. And as the world changes and as the pace of change accelerates across the world, we are experiencing this sense. A rapidity of change and a rapidity of loss, that if we allow this to go unaddressed, if we don't have stories, have ways of acknowledging the losses that are being experienced, and the sense of being dislocated by loss, unmoored by loss, the danger is that these unaddressed losses become a fertile ground for all sorts of malevolent characters, people who peddle anti-human kind of nostalgias who tell us that we can go back to what things were like. We can be young again. Things can be the way that things were when we were young again. And in that process, condemn us to, I think, a futile effort to move backwards through time. And so for me, the novel really explores this, the many losses that we experience, that these characters experience, that human beings experience, ways that we can navigate those losses and ways that it might be possible to take things into a future where new forms of optimism are possible. The book is, in a sense, a novel born from the COVID pandemic. Most of it was written during the pandemic time. The idea for the book certainly preceded the pandemic. And as I was sketching the book out, all that was happening before the pandemic. But the pandemic, in a sense, brought home the idea that what we imagine to be immutable reality is really just a veneer. It can be peeled away very, very easily. And that what we think of as fixed is highly contingent. And what we think of as a realism is in fact not realism. It is simply, in many cases, coincidence. And so I think the pandemic was an experience that echoed the writing of the book. And certainly the book probably absorbed from the pandemic that sense of hearing about something far away and having it come closer and closer and eventually changing things where you are. That's what it felt like to me as word of this illness spread and then how it suddenly transformed life in the places where I lived. So yes, I think the book very much reflects where it comes from. But also that the pandemic very much reflects the fact that fiction is something we participate in every day when we pretend that the way things are, are the way that they always have been or always will be. I don't really try to characterize my books too much into, you know, what is it? Is it a fable? Is it science fiction? Is it allegory? I think those terms are quite useful or can be quite useful, but are less useful to me when I make things. And the reason for that is that I view my job as a writer really not as the task of making novels. I think what I do is I make half novels that are words on a page. And that readers, when they read those words on a page, imagine them into existence and create what is actually a novel. A novel isn't a bunch of A's and Q's and commas and full stops. A novel is people and feelings and emotions. And it isn't what's on the page. There's a sort of symbolic language that's on the page, like a source code. But that source code is then animated inside the imagination of a reader into the experience the reader actually has. And so what I try to do in a lot of my fiction and particularly in this book is to leave space for the reader to do that, not to describe things too much, to leave gaps in meaning, to leave gaps in things that go unnamed, places that go unnamed, people that go unnamed, to open up spaces and gaps for the reader to occupy. And brevity is part of that, too. I tend to write short novels, but I hope that the reader, in a sense, makes something bigger of these shorter novels. And what I'm offering is just a way into an experience that the reader will co-create alongside me. It's strange to read the book from beginning to end out loud. And I've done it for each of my books. And every time I feel I learn something because when I read my books out loud in the process of writing them, which I do over and over again, you know, a typical writing day for me probably involves more time pacing around my study, reading stuff out loud than it does actually typing into my computer. But that said, when I'm reading it in my study by myself, I'm reading it and really catching the sound of it to my ear. When I'm reading it for an audiobook, it feels more like a performance. The imagined audience is more distant and less clearly perceptible in my study and suddenly much more present and much closer in the recording studio. And so the book gets interrogated. It gets questioned in a different way. How well does it work for that imagined reader as it comes closer, as that person comes closer, as that idea comes closer? So it exposes things. It shows me things. It makes me reassess things. This wonderful idea of the classical Sufi poets as engaging in a task of brushing the sands of the beaches of their poems with their eyelashes to remove all the pebbles. You know, when you read things out loud, that's sort of what you're doing, and certainly Every time I read my stuff out loud, I realize that there are pebbles. And in doing the audiobook, I sense those pebbles. What one has to, I guess, console oneself with is that hopefully one has taken the book to the point where, although you can never get all of the pebbles out of the sand of your words, you've reached a point where, in the act of removing a pebble, you're likely to do more harm to the sand around it than you would by leaving it where it was.
1: And now... Here's a clip from Mosen Hamid's audiobook, The Last White Man.
0: One morning, Anders, a white man, woke up to find he had turned a deep and undeniable brown. This dawned upon him gradually, and then suddenly, first as a sense as he reached for his phone that the early light was doing something strange to the color of his forearm. Subsequently, and with a start, as a momentary conviction, that there was somebody else in bed with him, male, darker. But this, terrifying though it was, was surely impossible. And he was reassured that the other moved as he moved, was in fact not a person, not a separate person, but was just him, Anders, causing a wave of relief. For if the idea that someone else was there was only imagined, then of course the notion that he had changed color was a trick too an optical illusion, or a mental artifact, born in the slippery halfway place between dreams and wakefulness.
1: Hi, this is Beverly Lowry, author of Deer Creek Drive, A Reckoning of Memory and Murder in the Mississippi Delta. I think I've been waiting to write this book for as long as I've been writing books because two other nonfiction books of mine concern terrible and very splashy murders that kind of rocked a community. And anytime I was interviewed about why would I write about such terrible things, I always cited the murder of Idella Thompson and the conviction of her daughter as the murderer. It happened when I was young, a girl. I never forgot it, and it always haunted me. And so at this point in my life, I decided, okay, I think the time has come. I'm going to write about this. I went and started doing research, and here's the book. If I had to describe what it was like to record my audiobook in one word, That word would be harder than I imagined. It takes a long time to read, and to read so that the words, which I know, can be understood by other people. It took a week, and it was all fine. I worked with very pleasant, kind people, very skillful people, but my ears got very tired. I realized that sometimes I used words that I was perfectly comfortable using that I knew the meaning of and thought were appropriate in the whatever particular sentence they landed in, but in fact, I had trouble pronouncing them. One was intestate, like the man who died intestate and the other version of that word, intestacy. There were a few others that we had to look up. And there were names in the book that I was unclear on. For those, like Claude Romine and Bo the river, I had to call my friends from the Delta and say, how do you pronounce this? Because I wanted to get it right. I guess what I'm especially proud of is establishing the context of this murder as in the Delta in a particular time that began during Jim Crow and lasted through the Brown decision. Anybody who writes and especially wrote about the Mississippi Delta, writes inevitably about race and class. I wanted this murder to be placed within that context, not just murder details, trial details, one after the other, but a whole sense of what was going on. The details of the trial and how easy people were with the language they used and the language that was in the trial transcript, I found pretty shocking. And I wanted that to be included and to be made clear. I hope I did that. If I wasn't going to record my audiobook, oh, I would cast somebody who knows how Southerners talk and doesn't do one of those over-the-top and ridiculous Hollywood imitations. I don't know who that would be. I listen to a lot of audiobooks, and I hear a lot of good readers. I think a professional actor, a woman, might have been able to be a little more casually certain about her reading than I felt I was. I listened to a lot of audiobooks. And I think the one I enjoyed the most was Robert Caro's reading of Working, because it was all about him and about his experience writing Lyndon Johnson's biography. He would get tickled remembering certain scenes. And I would be driving along, listening to him, laughing with him. Plus, he has that deep New York accent that he makes no bones about and never tries to improve. It was just a perfect delight. Plus, for a person who's done a good bit of research on her own, great information and insight. My favorite place to listen to audiobooks is in the car, especially on those long drives from my home in Austin to... Jackson, Mississippi, Greenville, Mississippi, Leland, Mississippi, Memphis, and all places in between, and on whatever exercise equipment I happen to be operating, usually a spinner bike I bought before the pandemic. And now, listen to a clip from my audiobook. You'd think by now people would have forgotten or perhaps decided simply to let go of the memory of what happened in the Mississippi Delta town of Leland in the early afternoon of November 17, 1948. But nobody has. Even people too young to remember know about it. They've seen clippings pasted in old scrapbooks or heard the story, which did not, by the way, end that year or the next. But went on and on. One of those stories that, because people love to tell it, keeps starting over. Although some local residents still refuse to engage, even briefly, in a discussion of the matter, there are those who would, if you went to Leland, gladly point out the house where it happened, still standing, freshly painted, perfectly white, lawn exquisitely maintained.
2: Hi, this is Alora Young, author of Walking Gentry Home. I wrote my book because I realized I didn't know the names of my ancestors past my great-grandma. And I was like, well, that just won't do. And so I went on a whole grand quest through the slave papers and Ancestry.com and all sorts of archives to figure out where I came from. And because I'm a poet, my life is poetry, and it all came out into this book, and I'm really proud of it, and I think it's something unique, and that makes me happy. If I had to describe what it was like to record my audiobook in one word, that word would be peaceful. It was pretty peaceful. I think it was peaceful because I'm used to speaking for extended periods of time because I like to perform, and I give a lot of talks. I, like, do TED Talks and stuff. And so just talking for extended periods of time isn't really a problem for me. And so I just had a very relaxing time in this very quiet box listening to myself talk. It was rather enjoyable, if I do say so myself. I realized I had trouble pronouncing the word shorty? Shoddy? Because, you know, everybody says shoddy, but, like, it's shorty, but it's not. It's a perplexing word. It's a deeply perplexing word. And I don't think I pronounced it right, but that's how I pronounced it. I'm really proud I was able to perform the poems like I would at a performance, because I'm a spoken word poet, it was really exciting for me to be able to do the poems as I would on stage. Because one of the things people always say to me is like, oh, I loved hearing you perform. I wish there was like a recording of it. I wish I could like listen to it over and over again. And now there's actually going to be a recording of me performing my poems the way they're meant to be heard and people will be able to listen to it and it's really exciting I wish I could like play it on the radio or something I don't know how audiobooks work but that would be cool if I wasn't going to record my audiobook I would cast Morgan Parker because she is a poet with a kind of similar style but also she's just like my favorite living poet of all time it would be an honor to have my work read by her and that would be totally awesome I'm currently listening to The Anthropocene Reviewed by John Green, but the last great audiobook I listened to was A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor by Hank Green. I'm kind of obsessed with the Green Brothers. like, love all their work, watch all their YouTube videos, buy all the merch. I'm definitely a part of Nerdfighteria. It's my crew. I love those people. I love listening to audiobooks while I do scrapbooking or other crafts. My plan is to make some Walking Gentry Home merch, like arts and crafts stuff, and then I'm going to do a giveaway, and I'm going to like be like, oh, if you pre-order the book, then you can enter to win some crafts that I made, because I love making crafts, especially related to the book, because like it's exciting. I like to make stickers. And now, listen to a clip from my audiobook to have a name. I wonder if a mother's love can be found on the second X chromosome. If God built a womb as a portal from heaven's own, if Eve could have known that womanhood was a power that God never wanted to be revealed. But the forbidden fruit sowed Eden into our DNA. I wonder if Claudette Colvin knew that something as simple as refusing to rise could incite something prophesized in Negro hymns for centuries, if she knew her revolutionary movement would live in the shadow of Rosa Parks' memory. Black womanhood is being asked to bring gifts to parties you were never invited to. It's lighting everyone's candle with the fire alight in you. It's standing in solidarity with women who didn't fight for you because you know what oppression feels like. And I think that God just might love like black women
0: do. This is the Author is a production of Penguin Random House Audio. Thank you for listening.
2: For more behind-the-mic content and audiobook recommendations,
0: visit www.penguinrandomhouseaudio.com/slash-next-listen.